Well, good morning. Or well, good day. When Steve Timmis messaged me and asked me if I would be willing to speak at the global gathering on, of all topics, the topic of humility, it, it was helpful in clarifying our relationship that Steve does hate me. <laughs> what an amazing topic. What an amazing grace to give some sustained thought to. What a, what a worthy virtue for us to strive to be known for. Amen, Acts 29. Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah 57, verse 15, said, For thus says the Lord, the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, And to revive the heart of the contrite. Let me just give a a few general thoughts on humility before circling back around to some of this. First, we need to see that humility is essential. Humility is essential because it is us living rightly before God. Because we're now learning to see rightly the reality of things. That it is God who is high and lifted up, not us. It is God who is exalted. It is God who inhabits the high and holy place. And we are very, very small. And A.W. Tozer's got a great uh, just bit of imagery to help us understand this. And he says that God is as high above an archangel as he is above a caterpillar. And it's not like God's the top of this list where it's like God, the archangels, regular angels, people, uh, animals, lizards, bugs, insects, cats, right? It's not. <laughs> it's that God transcends the entire list because all of those things from archangel down to cat belong in the category of created things. And God alone breaks the whole list and stands apart as the creator. And so humility is essential. He won't share his glory. We know he opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. We also can see and have learned from experience that humility is painful. Humility is so painful. And being a church planter in in a very real sense is an inherently humbling endeavor, isn't it? To be a church planter is to be a pain embracer. Am I right? It stinks. It hurts. We get to learn this for real. I mean, ministry is tiring. Church planting is tiring. It has a way of aging us, right? I mean, like Noel Hakenen, our U.S. Midwest director... He's 26. (laughs) And we were able to leverage the latest technology to see what 10 more years of church planning is going to (laughs) do. And yet it's in the place of pain that we... We learn humility. It's in the, the, 
the presence of the difficult things that God in His sovereignty allows us to walk into, promising us that none of those things will be wasted. And in His sovereign hand, all of those things, those trials, enemies, obstacles, all of them now simply become servants of our sanctification. Think about it. Doesn't disappointment... When things don't go my way, doesn't hardship have a way of exposing some of the idols that are hidden in the dark corners of my heart that were just camouflaged into the background of my successes? Not getting my way has a way of bringing those things to the surface. And the Lord uses it to humble us. Doesn't hardship work for our good in this way? Doesn't opposition have a way of keeping us prayerfully grounded in the realities of our great mission. So humility is a a rare flower that grows not on the mountaintops, but in the valleys. It is painful, but it's also beautiful. Humility is beautiful. Have you ever been around a person who isn't preoccupied with needing to prove themselves to you? It's like you've experienced a measure of Jesus himself to be in their presence. There's just this absence of posturing and self-reference and self-glory that that you come away from them feeling like your soul has inhaled a breath of mountain air. And because they're secure in Jesus, they are free from needing to impress you. And because they're free from needing to impress you, they're free to actually love you. That's what humility looks like when we, when we meet it. And there are many people in this room who are just like that. And I can't say your name because I don't want to wreck it. <laughs> and if you're like sitting there thinking, I think he means me, it's not you. It's for sure not you, okay? So humility is essential. Humility is painful. Humility is beautiful. And here's a new word I learned. Humility is epiphenomenal. Some of you are like, he's never used that word before for sure. And you would be right, okay? But epiphenomenal means a secondary phenomenon, epi, that arises from a primary phenomenon. And this totally makes sense when we think about humility, doesn't it? That It's one of those things that to aim at it directly, we find ourselves missing it entirely. This is why it's been called the shyest of virtues. It's like trying to better see the sun by staring directly at it. The net result is we don't see anything at all. So Jonathan Edwards says the only way is to look at Christ. To look at our humility is to make it vanish. But to look at the infinitely lovely God, supremely manifest in Christ, is to bring humility in the back door of the heart. So let's look at our Lord again. Isaiah 57. I dwell, he says, in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly. To revive the heart of the contrite. The lowly, biblically speaking, is not just 
a safe place to make our home in because it lines up with the reality of things. It's the best place for us to make our home in, the low place, because it's where we know that we will meet with the risen God. He meets us in the low place. Jesus inhabits the high place and in the low place. Job 22 says that God saves the lowly. David says, though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly. But the haughty he knows from afar. And Jesus himself said, says, learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. I mean, what a thought. The exalted king of glory describes his heart, his essence, with the words of gentle and lowly. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly. The low place is where Jesus is. And some of us have maybe read Ray Ortland's commentary, wonderful commentary on Isaiah. And in there he says that the God has two addresses, the high place where we cannot go and the low place where we can. So let's go there. Let's live there. Let's make our home there, knowing that God promises when we do, he revives the spirit of the lowly. And who among us right now does not need a reviving touch of God's power? And so, how can we know? How can we know that humility is making its home in us? How can we know that we are making our home in the low place where Jesus is? What are some indicators we might be able to look for along the way that would tell us that we are making progress in this difficult of virtues? And maybe one way we can identify whether or not we are growing in humility is by looking for the presence or absence of a few of humility's friends who are a little easier to see. So humility might be shy, but she never rides solo. She's got a posse. She's got a crew. She has an entourage of friends that if you were to hear them and notice them, you might be able to conclude that humility is nearby too. And on the flip side, if we don't notice these friends, we can also conclude humility is likely absent as well. We've already met one of them in Joby's talk on holiness. Three more that I want to give you in our last few minutes here is dependent prayer. If you meet her, you know holiness is around the corner. Gratitude and relational beauty. Dependent prayer, gratitude, relational beauty. First one, do we notice the presence or absence of dependent prayer in our lives, in our churches, in our network? We can know that humility is present when this is. We can know that humility is absent when we maybe find ourselves subconsciously placing the weight of ministry success in our context more on our plans than our prayers. And listen, I think, I, think, I think for us Christian leaders, I think for most of us, the greatest indicator of pride in our lives is not so much the presence of boasting, but the absence of prayer. 
Because boasting's obvious to see, right? We picked that one up pretty quickly. I mean, boasting, bragging, humble bragging, name dropping, those things kind of make themselves obvious. And yes, name dropping is annoying. My, my friend Tim Keller would back me up on this. And, but listen, if our lives are absent of earnest, God-dependent prayer, they will be absent of God's power. And so if we want a really accurate diagnostic for where we are at in humility, we need look no further than in the mirror of our own prayer lives. Francis Schaeffer said something that's messed me up. And he said the central problem of our age is that all too often we who are Christians, including those who know something of good theology, is that we tend to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh, Instead of in the power of the Spirit. And maybe another way of saying this might be we tend to do the Lord's work through relying more so upon our strategic plans than upon dependent prayer. Plans are good. Make them. But don't bank on them. You're going to change them. Bank the weight of your ministry. Bank the weight of your church planting endeavors. Step out in faith. But bank the weight of it on prayer. Trusting it into the hands of God. And maybe the kind of prayer we can start with is just a simple prayer of confession. And just owning it. That our biggest problem is not that we are too weak. It is that we are too clever. And it's when we come to this place of honesty where we simply say, I can't do this. I I am tired. I am anxious. I have doubts. I don't have it all together. I'm not the answer man or answer woman. I, I, I'm not all that I present myself to be that we can finally inhabit the low place where the Lord promises to meet our human limitations and renew us with the Spirit's power. Do we notice the presence or absence of prayer? Do we notice the presence or absence of gratitude? Gratitude is the language of a people who inhabit the low place. Because gratitude is the language of a heart that's been captivated by grace. Like the story of the Puritan who lost everything in his life and family, wealth, reputation, all of it gone and had nothing left in prison but, but, but a, a piece of bread and a glass of water. And, and his response was, what? All of this and Jesus too? Paul says about himself in Ephesians 3, 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, I mean, hear his tone. He's he's bewildered. To me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul here just can't believe he gets to be a Christian. Do we feel that way still? He is being assaulted by gratitude. I get to be a Christian. Jesus doesn't need me. Jesus wanted me. I get to be a Christian, let alone for some of us, 
the privilege of preaching the unsearchable riches of Christ. So gratitude grows simply as we remember that I am Christ's. I belong to him. I'm a child of God. One of my boys uh, just a little while ago was, was not listening well on, on this particular day and, and, and just disobeying Christine and I and all sorts of different things. And, and we're sitting there and he comes to this place of genuine, genuine sorrow and, and, and looks at me through these, these tear-stained eyes and, and goes, Dad, do you love Alea, his older sister? Do you love Alea better than me? Because she listens better than I do. I said, yes, son, you finally got it. (laughs) No, right? No. Man, I grabbed him by his face and and with tears in my eyes, I looked at him and I, I said, no, I love you, not because you're smart or obedient or perfect or, or, or clever or all these different things. I love you because you're mine. Do we still believe that's how Jesus sees us? He loves you because he chose to set his love upon you. And entitlement is what happens when we forget this. That I was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace. Entitlement is what happens when we forget this and believe the original lie. That God is holding out on me. That God is not enough for me. I need more. Listen, if that kind of pride, because let's, let's, let's say it for what it is, entitlement is pride. If that form of pride was the way through which the brightest of angels became the darkest of devils and the way through which we broke the cosmos, do we really want to flirt with that? So when our hearts are tempted to covet or measure in comparison, we can remember these words from another Puritan, Thomas Brooks, who said, Has not Christ given you himself? Is not one dram of his grace worth 10,000 worlds? So why should you envy at the gifts that he bestows upon others? Christ has given you himself. Do we notice the presence or absence of gratitude? And lastly, do we notice the presence or absence of relational beauty? Paul in Ephesians 4 says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. And if you know the structure of Ephesians, Paul just from coming up the mountaintops of Ephesians 1 through 3, these soaring majestic doctrines of grace, they are all designed to lead us into a shared experience of humility and gentleness and patient love that marks our togetherness in Christ. There is relational beauty here. And this happens when we see ourselves like Paul did as the least of all the saints because when you're the least of all the saints, there's no one left beneath you. And so you treat other people with the same patience that Jesus treats you. So I want to close with just a couple of questions for us because I know there's an obvious personal dimension to this that we all want to think through for ourselves. But what would this look like for us collectively as a network? What if 
What if people knew of Acts 29 as being the humble network of church planting churches? So let me just finish with this. What if over the next 10 years, while we get busy planting thousands of more churches by the grace of God all over the world, what if we were to take seriously Paul's words to watch our lives and our doctrine closely? Because we valued biblical realities like personal integrity and relational beauty just as highly as we valued doctrinal accuracy. What if over the next 10 years we became known as the network who while holding tightly to our theological convictions was humble enough to say thank you to other parts of the body of Christ with whom we disagree with on secondary matters? Oh my goodness. What might God do through us in our time and in our day if while we went about our strategic plans, we became a network who placed the weight of our ministry success upon our prayers? And why should we not believe that God intends to do a reviving work in our day and age that we get to be a part of and get in on? All we have to do is lose a high view of ourselves. And we don't want that anyways, amen? So here's the good news is we don't need to be impressive. We don't need to be spectacular for God to do a great work through us. We just need to make our home in the low place where Jesus meets us, promises to revive us, and the Holy Spirit shows off what only he can do. And when we make our home there, we will discover that in that place, there are more spiritual resources available to us than devils, problems, and difficulties coming at us. Let me pray. Lord, lead us to the low place. Make us happy in Jesus there. Help us to do your work in your way. For your glory. Amen.